The following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through outreach, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit restorationsouthside.org. This came up in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. If you're in kindergarten through fifth grade and you would like to go to children's church, please join our volunteers by the kids' own sign. If it's your child's first time in the children's church, please go with them so we can get them checked in. Last week when we looked at the text, um, it was all about hell. And I told you that um, even when it's difficult, we're going to teach you what the Bible says, what God's Word says to you, because Jesus says that it's useful to you, that it's said in, by Paul that it's useful for teaching, correcting rebuking and training in righteousness so that we're going to teach the hard passages even when they're hard. And we taught through hell and it was difficult, but it was good for us. And then on Monday I opened up the passage and I found this one here on divorce. And I thought they're going to need to hear the exact same thing. We're not picking these passages as an axe to grind. We're faithfully studying through God's word passage by passage, and we're going to teach the hard stuff even when it's hard. And so here we find this text in this teaching about divorce. Now, I want to say a few things before we dive in. One, this passage is not Jesus picking on shamed people. This passage is not Jesus picking on shamed people. He is answering a group of religious people who are trying to trap him. He is answering a group of religious people who are trying to trap him. So the posture of his response needs to be taken into consideration as part of the context. 
meaning he is not sharing grace and compassion with someone who is wounded by the difficulties of divorce. That's not what he's doing in this passage. He's addressing a group of religious leaders that want him dead and are trying to trick him. So if the posture of Jesus in this text seems a certain way, remember it is who he's talking to. Remember what's going on in the text. He's not picking on shamed people. He's answering a group of religious people who are trying to trap him. It's really what he's doing here is he's making protection for women who had almost no rights in the Old Testament time and the New Testament time. He's making provision for women, and you'll see in the verses that were just read that he actually makes provision and protection for children as well. But I want you to hear this. The Pharisees are looking for loopholes, and they have come to the wrong man. So let's pray and ask God to bless our study of his word this morning. Lord Jesus, would you have mercy on me, a sinner? I thank you and I praise you for your word and your Holy Spirit. And I ask God by your grace and by your compassion that your spirit would be profoundly, powerfully at work this morning. And for those who need comfort and encouragement, that you would bless them, that you would heal them, that you would make them whole again by the provision of your word and your spirit, by those, those of us that need rebuke and correction, God, would you do so in a way that points us back to Jesus. We want to faithfully study your word. I don't want to declaw your word, nor do I want to use your word in any way that it's not intended to be used, which would cause more harm than help. So we ask that you would be at work this morning. We need your help. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Billy Graham's funeral, his daughter stood up and shared this story. She said, I know everybody has a Billy Graham story, but she said, I'm his daughter and I have a Billy Graham story too. And it's important that you hear it. And then she told this story. She said, after 21 years, my marriage ended in divorce. I was devastated. I floundered. My husband had betrayed me at the deepest levels. I had understood that I had biblical grounds for divorce, but I didn't want to be divorced. I didn't want to hurt or displease God in any way. My family thought it would be good for me to move away from the Shenandoah Valley and to get a fresh start somewhere. So I decided to live in Florida near my older sister Gigi and near a good church. The pastor of that church introduced me to a handsome widower and we began to date fast and furiously. My children didn't like him, but I thought, they're almost grown, and they can't tell me what to do. I knew it was best for my life. My mother called me from Seattle. My father called me from Tokyo. They said, honey, why don't you slow down? Let us get to know this man. But they had never been a single parent. They had never been divorced. What did they know? So being stubborn, willful, and sinful, I married this man on New Year's Eve. And within 24 hours, I knew I had made a terrible mistake. After five weeks, I fled. 
I was afraid of him. What was I going to do? I wanted to go talk to my mother and my father on my way to Montreat where they lived. I stopped and picked up my daughter Windsor from boarding school. I felt wrecked. I was coming home with my life in pieces. Shame weighed me down. I dreaded having to meet my parents' gaze. I didn't think I could handle what their eyes would communicate. I wanted to run and hide, but I could not. I had nowhere else to go. I could not undo my mistake. I knew I had to face it. I felt unworthy to go home, but I needed my parents. She said, I look back now, overwhelmed by God's tenderness and timing, for it was at this, my darkest hour, that God stepped in with one of his most powerful metaphors in my life. It was a two-day drive home. Questions whirled in my mind. What was I going to say to daddy? What was I going to say to my mother? What were I going to say to my children? I'd been such a failure. failure. What were they going to say to me? We're tired of fooling with you. We told you not to do it. You've embarrassed us. Many of you know that we live on the side of a mountain. And as I wound myself up the mountain, I rounded the last bend in my father's driveway and my father was standing there outside waiting for me. My father, who had every reason to rebuke, wrapped his strong arms around me, pulled me into a warm embrace and greeted me with these simple words. Welcome home. There was no shame. There was no blame. There was no condemnation. Just un conditional love it's a powerful Billy Graham story my friend Brian Salter shared it with me it's a beautiful story about Billy Graham's unconditional love for his daughter and the shame of her divorce and it's really a picture for us about God's unconditional love for sinners who though we are a mess in our sinners and are full of shame he welcomes us home The reason that I start there is because we all need to be reminded that we can always go home. Whatever your sin is out of this text, and we'll get into that in a few moments, I want you to leave here with the hope of the gospel that you can always go home. That's why Jesus came, so that people who are sinners like you and like me, riddled with flaws as we are, is that we can go home because of what Christ has done. So whatever conviction you experience during these few minutes, I want you to know that you can always go home. But just as there is this pastoral connotation with reading the Bible that we can always go home, that also God guides us and leads us with his word and his Holy Spirit to deal with things so that we can deal with them the way he intended to give them to us. Meaning he wants us to deal with relationships, with life, with work, with love, with marriage in a certain way. His instruction manual, the way he wanted us to execute them. And so here we're going to see the design for marriage as well as a confession, excuse me, a concession, concession for divorce. Well, let's first look at the trap of the Pharisees in verse 1 and 2. The trap of the Pharisees in verse 1 and 2. And he left there and he went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And as crowds gathered to him again and again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up 
in order to test him and ask, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? I want you to see it, the trap of the Pharisees. Right there in the text it said, and it came up in order to test him and ask. They want to trick Jesus. So the whole conversation happens not with Jesus and some limping, wounded sinner who needs grace, compassion, and conviction, but with these people who are trying to get Jesus killed. There's clues in the text. I wonder why they ask him about divorce right here. Why would they do that? All the things in the world to get him to ask about, why would they do that right here? Did you hear it? And went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. Who does that remind you of? Who used to work in Judea? and beyond the Jordan. Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist. And do you remember what we last heard of John the Baptist? That John the Baptist was decapitated. Why? Because he was known to tell Herod that Herod was in adultery because Herod's wife had divorced Herod's own brother and married Herod instead. And John would not stop teaching that. And because of that, telling Herod to his face, you are in an adulterous marriage because of the way that your wife was divorced. Because he kept saying that, they cut off his head. So Jesus is in John the Baptist's neighborhood. And the Pharisees come and they ask him, is it legal to divorce your wife? See what they're trying to do? They're trying to get him to say what John said, which is, it is not legal to divorce your wife. And therefore, Jesus is saying the same thing that John the Baptist is saying. And if he says it, then they can go to Herod and say, see, he's saying the same thing his cousin said, take his life, kill him. And so they are trying to trap Jesus in an impossible position. They're thinking that if they could get John killed, they can get Jesus killed too. The word I told you they used here is test him. They wanted to test him. Mark only uses the word test four times in his gospel. Three of those four times is when the Pharisees test Jesus, trick him, try to trick him anyway. You know what the fourth time is? Is when the devil comes to test Jesus in the wilderness. Meaning in both cases, it's someone trying to use God's word to trip up the word of God as Jesus. Alistair Begg says it this way, religious people are trying to use the word of God to trip up the son of God. Isn't this funny? When you see Religious people who are using God's own word to talk to Jesus who is God's own word. I can't help but think of the C.S. Lewis Chronicles of Narnia and the witch is trying to trip up Aslan and the witch is quoting the ancient book to Aslan and he says, don't quote the book to me, witch. I was there when it was written. That's what I feel like is going on here. They're quoting Moses. They're quoting what was said way back then to the person who wrote it. Now, there were two schools about 
divorce in the time of those religious leaders. There was one who, who would say you could only divorce your wife in, because of a case of sexual immorality where she had broken the covenant. And in that case, in that case alone, you could divorce your wife, give her a certificate of divorce. Or there was another group of people who were trying to give basically kick open the doors and say you could divorce your wife for any reason. In the Matthew version of this, same passage, the same encounter, the Matthew version, the Pharisees say, is it lawful for, to divorce your wife for any reason? They're basically trying to kick open the doors wide so that either they can get divorced whenever they want because of any small thing their wives do that they don't like or get him killed. And either way, they'll either get to get what they want and have divorces, get new wives, get rid of their old wives, or they'll have Jesus trapped and ready to be killed. They're not coming to him in good faith. The whole debate is about a passage in Deuteronomy 24.1 that says this, if a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and gives it to her and sends her from his house. And basically, the groups were arguing about how indecent it had to be. How displeasing could it be? So they're trying to trick him, to kill him, and to let themselves out of the marriage covenant. And then Jesus tells them, so that's the trap. And then Jesus tells them the truth about marriage and sex. Glance with me in verse 3. He answered them, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. They shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So I want you to see what's happened here is that first Jesus tells them about this permissive law in the Old Testament and he gets them to show their hand, show their cards right at the beginning. Did you see it? They said, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Or in another text, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? And he said, what did Moses command you and they said, Moses allowed. He is getting them to admit right up front that they're trying to get a command that they can get out of their marriages. And he's saying right at the outset, you need to understand that this was a law, an allowance, not a command, that you're not commanded to get divorced. It was an allowance in case of these particular cases. So all from the beginning, he tricks them. They're trying to come at him and he flips the script on them and says, the very beginning, you're not even focused on the right thing. You're looking for the exception and you're ignoring the rule, the law. They're trying, he says, what does man, Moses command? And he says, well, Moses allows and he, he's gotcha. They wanted Jesus to permit a more relaxed version of divorce because they were hard-hearted and wanted to be able to divorce their wife for any reason. You see what he said? Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. So they're like, look, we're, we're following Moses' law. Moses allowed a man to write 
a certificate of divorce and send her on her way. And Jesus says, Moses did that because of your hard hearts. Moses did that to protect women. Moses did that because he knew that if he didn't have this allowance for women, that women would be abused and taken advantage of and dismissed unfairly. And so Moses put a legal procedure in place so that it would slow people down from divorce, so that they would actually have to go through a process, so that there might be some reconciliation, some healing Before they get their legal certificate, he was doing this to protect women from men just pushing them to the side of margin where they would have been hurt and abused and taken advantage of and maybe even killed. Sinclair Ferguson said this, Moses had given words to create a legal barrier sinning to keep people from sinning as they pleased. They were meant in part to protect women Rather than giving permission for divorce, they were intended to to restrict the ease with which divorce would take place. Do you see that? They're trying to use it as the reason why they're allowed to have a divorce. And he's saying the whole reason these things exist was to keep you from getting divorced. Do you see that? They're trying to trick him into giving them permission to do something and that thing they want to do existed to keep them from doing it. He flips the script that Moses didn't command divorce but he allowed it under special circumstances. It was a protection. And Jesus says, oh, you think you know Moses from Deuteronomy? Let's talk about Moses from Genesis 2. You see, remember, these are teachers of the law. They know their Bible. They know that Moses didn't just write Deuteronomy. Moses wrote Genesis too. So he's saying, oh, you want to talk Moses? Let's talk early Moses. I don't know, Genesis 2.24. When Jesus says this, but from the beginning, God made the male and female. Therefore, man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They're poking holes in the word, ignoring the original intent, and they're looking for the loophole. And they've come to the wrong man. My favorite commentator says this, the problem was not with the ideal from Genesis 2.24, nor with the law from Deuteronomy 24, but with the people. And that's how it is. The problem isn't with God's design. The problem isn't with God's design and how he communicates it to us. The problem is with our hearts. Now, as I was looking at this passage this week, it occurred to me that we could easily read this passage about divorce and have in the church the people who are married monogamously and permanently sort of sit up and say, oh, I love passages like this. I'm finally right in a room where a sermon is being preached. I finally don't have anything to worry about because this isn't a sin that I'm capable of. The sin is for those people out there. The sin is for those in the culture. You know what they do. I'm married monogamously and permanently, so I should be good. That would be our tendency. 
except we know Jesus from other passages. We know that it says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Or how about this in Matthew 5? You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Friends, I don't know about you, but that makes me a profound adulterer. So before we go and wave our fingers in the face of the world and in the culture, we might do best to look at God's word by God's spirit and have him work on our hurt, our hearts, and our sexuality, and our marriages first. Before we shake our fingers at the world who don't have the Holy Spirit. Shake our fingers at the LGBTQ+. We should look at our own sin. Anyone who looks at a woman with lust in his heart has committed adultery already. It's not just adultery out there. It's adultery in here. It's adultery in here. And we share in the responsibility of decaying marriage in our culture. We share in that. In the responsibility of decaying marriage of our, con- excuse me, of our culture. Because we make marriage look miserable. We make marriage look miserable. If it is an institution, not of the government and not of the culture, but it's an institution, as Jesus says from the beginning, instituted by God, then God's people should make marriage look attractive. It should look fun. It should look appealing. And perhaps part of the blame of what the culture has done to marriage is because God's people have made marriage look dead and miserable and lifeless and resentful. Maybe we were supposed to be God's advertisement to the world about what God was like, about what marriage was like, and it's partially on us because we've made it look so sad. Can you imagine if you saw a couple where the husband was sacrificial and gentle and kind and lifted his wife up and was faithful? Can you imagine a wife who was gentle with her words and honoring of her husband and loving and positive and for him? Can you imagine how engaging that would be to be around? You've seen those couples, not often, but every once in a while, you've seen those couples who make marriage look so good in the way that they play, in the way that they flirt, in the way that they talk, in the way that they listen, in the way that they understand each other. And when you're around them, you're just kind of like, man, I wish I could be married like that. So before we wave our fingers at the face of the culture and at the world, let us first, by God's grace, through his word and by his spirit, deal with our sin. We're allowed and compelled to teach what the Bible says. But the problem is, is we understand what the Bible says and teach what it says against those who don't follow God to the neglect of trying to obey it ourselves. 
Rick Warren said this, our culture has accepted two huge lies. The first is that if you disagree with someone's lifestyle, you must fear or hate them. Or the second is to love someone means you give everything you agree with everything they believe or do. Both are nonsense. You don't have to compromise convictions to be compassionate. And that's what tends to happen. The church either says, let's never tell the truth because the truth might hurt somebody, and let's just love with compassion. Or the church says, forget about love and compassion. These people, whoever these people are, aren't living by the truth, and we need to tell them. And Warren says here that you can do both. Both are nonsense that the perspectives that you have to do one or the other, you don't have to compromise convictions to be compassionate. What would it look like for the church to speak up in a broken world, broken sexually, broken about marriage, and say, we are gonna tell you the truth lovingly, slowly, patiently over time, clearly communicate it to you, and we're gonna point at our sin a whole lot more than we point at yours. And then Jesus starts in, verse six. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Male and female. What he's saying here is that in the Bible, God's design for marriage is that it would involve one man and one woman, male and female. Alistair Begg says that this is the exclusive nature of marriage, is that it's for a one man and one woman. That we are going to have to love and model that for those around us because things have gotten very confusing. And we're gonna have to practice radical community, as one article said. You can't imagine how difficult it must be that if you're trying to follow Jesus and are gay or same-sex attracted, to know that following Jesus is going to mean loneliness for the rest of your life and the church isn't gonna help. But what if we practiced radical community? Is that if those who would be so bold and so brave as to identify as gay or same-sex attracted and decide to live a life of celibacy, that they weren't going to have to do it alone. But Jesus says clearly that marriage is for a man and a woman alone. He also says that marriage is the place for sexuality and monogamy. Look in 7 and 8. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. They are no longer two, but one flesh. He is using very obvious analogy to talk about how in marriage the two become one spiritually and physically, sexually, the two become one. That it's a new identity of, as a married couple not to be separated, and that that is actually the place, the only context for sexuality. And a permanent marriage between a man and a woman. That means any other kind of sex outside of marriage, a permanent relationship between a man and a woman is sin. That means what we look at on our screens is sin. That means when we engage in sexual intercourse before married with our fiance, it's sin. 
That means when we have affairs, it's sin. That means when a man and a man have sex, it's a sin, or a woman and a woman have sex, it's a sin, because it was ordained for God to say a one man, one woman, in a lifetime committed marriage, that's the only place for it. That's it. And it's hard. It's difficult. That's why the Bible addresses sexuality and sin over and over again because he knows that we're going to need help. But what the church does is we pick out the parts that we're good at and then we point at the rest of them and say, that's what he's talking about. And what if we as the church talked about all of it and talked about how we too struggle to be faithful to these things, but God can help. He really can help. Instead, we point to ourselves like we're completed versions, versions of this sexuality thing. We are married in committed relationships, and so we're allowed to have sex, and so we're the completed version, and everything else is what God was after. When we have sexual sin in our own life, in our own marriages, in our own hearts, so it postures us in an arrogant and superior place to people who so desperately need our help who so desperately already feel alone, who so desperately already feel hurt. And Jesus says marriage is between a man and a woman. Marriage is to be sexual and monogamous, meaning one marriage partner for sex, for life. And then he says this, the, the for life part, verse eight and nine. The two shall become one flesh. They're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. He's saying your vows matter. Your actions matter. Sinclair Ferguson said the Pharisees wanted to talk about divorce and he insisted on talking about marriage instead. And then we'll close here. So he says the trap, they're trying to get him to make an exception to the law, the law, the trap, and they're trying to get him killed. The truth about marriage, it's for one man and one woman, a sexually monogamous relationship for the rest of their life. And then he tells the disciples the truth about the divorce. Do you see how he pulls them away? Jesus still wants, has things to do in his earthly kingdom before they kill him and before he raises from the dead. And so he doesn't give the full orbed answer to the cynic but when the disciples pull him aside and they're like, hey, hey, though, seriously, isn't there this exception? In the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter, and he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her, and if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. The clue is in that last part, if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. There is no way a woman in this time would have had the opportunity legally to divorce someone. He's referencing Herod and Herod's wife who divorced Herod's brother so that she could marry Herod. And he's saying, yes, there is an exception to marriage when there has been adultery, sexual adultery. And we know from the Bible that there are grounds for divorce. That means that some divorces and all divorces are painful. Some divorces have biblical grounds for taking place. The Bible and our tradition would argue that there are three, 
some would argue conservatively that there are two and that the third is a good and necessary consequence of it, but that there's biblical grounds for divorce and adultery, biblical grounds for, uh, for abandonment of an unbeliever from 1 Corinthians 7, and then I would argue biblical grounds for adultery for, because of abuse, that God would not want someone to stay in a marriage where there has been abuse of a sexual, psychological, emotional, or physical way, that that is a good and necessary consequence of the other two. There are grounds for divorce because he's saying some things wreck a marriage so grievously that the only way forward is forward. But Moses was trying to make it difficult to get divorced and Jesus would want it to be difficult for us to get divorced because he doesn't want us to give up because divorce brings too much wreckage. Divorce brings too much damage. One of the commentators thinks that's exactly why he goes from the divorce passage right into gathering up the kids. You see that? Let the little children come to me. It's the same text. If she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery, and they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. He's, one of the commentators thinks it's this object lesson of, you know why marriage is so serious? Because these are the ones who will be the recipients of the pain. He's saying, yes, there are reasons for divorce, adultery, abuse, abandonment of an unbeliever. And if you need to take Take, make use of those. Please come and see me or one of the leaders of our church. Don't make that decision by yourself. But he's saying, if all possible, don't give up. Our tradition has a position paper which explains clearly and it's helpful and it says this and I'll be brief about it. It says this. Basically, those that do get into a marriage without having adultery, abuse, or abandonment of an unbeliever, that is an adulterous decision, and that is an adulterous move, a sinful move right there, but that that person doesn't remain in a state of sin or adultery. It doesn't remain in a state of sin or adultery. That means that, yes, we as Christians do things like that, that ignore the three rules and do what we want to do and sin, and then we pursue a relationship, and then we look up and go, I didn't have grounds for this. And God in his kindness doesn't keep us in this state of sin and adultery, but no more that it was a punctiliar moment, a sin in which you embraced it and it needs to be repented of and healed of as much as is possible. But even that marriage, God doesn't want you to jump out of that marriage and do what was done on the first time. Even that marriage is now to be protected and cared for. Friends, want to have, want to help have people have healthy marriages? Want to help the culture which is so confused about gender and sexuality and marriage and divorce? You want to help them? Then be happily married. Love your spouse with grace and passion and gentleness and sacrifice and forgiveness and then do it again tomorrow. Let's stop shouting at the wind and let the Lord by his grace start dealing with us first so that the only thing that the world doesn't see is us shaking their fist, shaking our fist at them. They see us happy 
and compassionate and honest when we just go for the honest. But if you're thinking about getting a divorce, if you're thinking about walking away, please don't. It's more damage than you know. Pat Conroy, Aaron's favorite author, says this, divorce has many witnesses and many victims. It's lurid that entices observers to the dance and then flowers into a monstrous choreography and draws in friends and children and relatives. He says this, each divorce, divorce, sorry. Each divorce is the death of a small civilization. Two people declare war on each other and their screams and tears and days of withdrawal infect their entire world. Listen to this. There are no clean divorces. Divorces should be conducted in surgical wards, blood banks, or funeral homes. The greatest fury comes from the wound where love once issued forth. If you're thinking about running, friends, don't run. And if you're in a place where divorce isn't your particular sin pattern, Remember that all have fallen and fall, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully in his heart has committed adultery already. That there's only one whole holy person on this earth and we're not him, but that he came for sinners like you and me. Friends, you can always go home. And he says, welcome home. Let's pray. Jesus, by your Holy Spirit, anything that was said that understated or overstated or misstated by your Spirit, would you cause it all just to fall out the back of our heads and onto the ground and wash it away by your grace? And anything that was of you and your Holy Spirit, would you cause it to land and take root in the heart of your people, in the heart of people also that don't know you yet? Father, sexuality for every single one of us is a beauty, and we've made it into a burden. I pray that you would give this church healthy marriages, humble marriages, where we can speak to each other and with others with compassion and conviction, but that we're saying it of a place of humility. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Marriages, humble marriages, where we can speak to each other and with others with compassion and conviction, but that we're saying it of a place of humility. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.